Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today in our group learning program, we're going to be discussing chapter 16, which is titled Dissolving the Ego. Ego serves no purpose. We're going to be discussing what the ego is, how it causes complications in our life, and how to eliminate it or dissolve it. Because in order to get to enlightenment, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, we need to eliminate the ego. An enlightened being is not going to have an ego. And this word ego didn't actually exist during the lifetime of the Buddha, so he discussed it in a very unique way that still applies today, and it actually helps a lot to understand it through the eyes of the Buddha. So I'm going to be helping you to understand what the ego is and how we use this word today in modern times, but then in a more detailed way, talking about it in the way that the Buddha discussed it, because in the way that the Buddha discussed it, it puts it under a microscope and helps us to really understand it in a detailed sense. And with that level of detail, understanding what it is, how it causes complications in our life, and then how to eliminate it, then we can actually accomplish the goal of eliminating this as we make our way to enlightenment. So as we go today, I'm going to be pausing to allow you guys to ask questions just like I always do. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your questions get asked during the class. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So thank you all for being here. Very pleased to see that you're interested in learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. And this is such an important topic and one that is really important to be talking about earlier in your practice like this. Because if you started with this program when we first started about four months ago, this is still very early in your practice. Or even if you started in the last year and maybe you participated in the previous group learning program, this is still early in your practice. And ego is something that you really need to work at. It's not easily dissolved and easily eliminated. So understanding what it is early in practice like this is really important. And we talked a little bit about the self or personal existence view as it relates to the three universal truths of non-self. So with the three universal truths, that one truth of the universal truth of non-self, I mentioned, okay, I'll just introduce it and then I'll postpone until today in order to really explore it and discuss it in more detail. So this is our day to talk about personal existence view or the universal truth of non-self and as it included with that, the ego in conceit. So let's move to looking at what the ego is and really discuss this so that you understand what it is, both in terms of how we discuss it today and in terms of how the Buddha discussed it during his lifetime. So the ego is a collection of all the experiences, both in the past that we've had 
and the expectations we have of ourselves going forward in the future. The way that we've had certain experiences that we've encountered and been part of, and that's kind of shaped our mind about who we think we are as a person. And then there's certain expectations that we have of ourselves of the future that also kind of shapes our mind about who we think we are as an individual or as a person. And this is kind of a collected up experiences of what we might call the ego. The ego is an accumulation of thoughts, ideas, and perceptions that we have of ourself, our self-image, and our self-identity. Oftentimes, there's arrogance and pride, judgment, measuring and comparing as being superior or inferior to others. And this is how I define the ego at the very beginning of this chapter. But now let's talk about it in a more detailed sense, because the word ego didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha, and he described this personal existence view and this conceit, which is what we call the ego. And if we just refer to this as the ego, and we don't look at it in a more detailed sense under a microscope, then we're going to miss a lot of the detail that the Buddha was explaining during his lifetime. So in this path to enlightenment, in order to get to enlightenment, we need to eliminate the 10 fetters. There's 10 fetters or taints or pollutions of mind. The way that a fetter is defined is it's like a ball and chain, like a shackle around your ankle that's keeping you trapped in the unenlightened state and keeping you in the cycle of rebirth. So this fetter or this taint or this pollution of mind, there's 10 of them that a practitioner would need to eliminate as part of this path. Early on in practice, we're working on understanding the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the five precepts, the eightfold path. We're understanding the natural law of gamma. We're developing our meditation practice. We're understanding things like merit and the three poisons and these other things that we've been teaching as part of this program. But then as you start putting that practice together over a period of time, you'll notice that the mind will start moving into those jhanas, those first four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the four stages of enlightenment. And as the mind starts moving into these four phases of the jhanas, this is an ideal time to start looking at personal existence view, starting to deeply understand it and working to eradicate it. But here, even at the beginning of your practice like this, you can start understanding it and start to glean some information of what personal existence view is and what conceit is because it's a matter of multiple conversations and multiple explanations and you doing some learning, some reflection and practice over multiple times before you really deeply understand what these things are. It's not as simple as explaining the five factors of well-spoken speech or what is right action, for example. It's not quite as straightforward as that. So with personal existence view, I tend to incorporate it into this program and the other programs that I teach in multiple ways, multiple times, so that you can start getting your mind around what this is that the Buddha was talking about. This first fetter of personal existence view needs to be eliminated in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. The first stage of enlightenment, there's many criteria that someone needs to learn and practice in order to get to that. And one aspect of that is eliminating the first three fetters. The first fetter here is personal existence view. And what this relates to is the self-image and the self-identity. 
the self-image is how the mind perceives this physical body as being the self, as being who you are. So we kind of latch on to this physical body thinking that this is who we are as a person. This is our self. And if somebody says, you know, where are you? You know, you might point to the physical body, to your chest or even to your head or something like that. But what the Buddha is explaining to you as part of his path is that as long as your mind mistakenly believes and falsely understands and has this misperception that this physical body is who you are as a person, then you're going to continue to experience discontentedness because of it. Because this physical body is impermanent. And if we latch on and cling to this physical body thinking this is who we are, then when we hear agreeable things about our physical appearance or this self-image, then the mind's going to have these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. The mind's going to indulge in these pleasant feelings. But then it's only a matter of time before somebody says something negative or disagreeable or disparaging about this physical body. And there, if the mind is holding on to this physical body, this self-image, thinking this is who you are as a person, then when you hear those disagreeable things, then there's going to be painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation. So as long as the mind is holding on to this self-image of the physical body, thinking this is who we are, then we're going to continue to have discontentedness and the mind is going to be shaken up. Perhaps when you're younger and you have more youth and you're maybe handsome or beautiful and thin, maybe you start indulging in that and thinking that's who you are. But then as impermanence comes to visit you and maybe you start aging and looking older, maybe you get some extra pounds around the stomach or around the hips or other places, now the mind has discontentedness. The mind experiences sadness or frustration as it experiences this impermanence. So if the mind holds on to this self-image of the physical body, thinking this is who you are as a person, then it's going to only invite in this discontentedness. And likewise, if the mind holds on to the self-identity, the self-identity is how the mind perceives itself that I am a dad who is an American, who lives in Thailand, who's a Buddhist teacher, you know, so forth and so on. We could just go right on down the list of all these things that the mind might hold on to as part of our self-identity. You know, I'm a hard worker, I'm kind, I'm friendly. All these wholesome qualities that we might attribute to who we think we are as a person. If we identify with these qualities as being who we are as a person, and that's our self-identity, then the mind is once again inviting discontentedness in because when someone's like, oh, I've been to Thailand, that's such a wonderful place to live. You made such a wonderful decision to live in Thailand. Well, now there's all these pleasant feelings because this is agreeable speech. But then when somebody says, oh, Thailand's the most miserable place I've ever been, you know, yada, 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 all these negative things. Well, if I identify with being a resident of Thailand, then when I hear these things, then the mind would be shaken up and feel anger and sadness and perhaps even want to protect this self-identity. And we have all these identities, whether the mind thinks that, okay, I'm a father or I'm a electrician or I'm a pilot or I'm a 
house cleaner or I'm a student or I'm French or I'm an American or any of these other things that our mind holds on to, then we're just inviting in some discontentedness if the mind thinks that this self-identity is who you are as a person. And as long as the mind is grasping onto these, identifying with this as being the permanent self, then the mind is experiencing that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. Because the universal truth of non-self is the remedy to this that the Buddha provides us. He shares with us that there is no self, that this physical form that is here in front of us, this is just essentially a big bag of skin with bones, fluid, tissue, and all these other things that are inside this big bag of skin. And then we have this consciousness or this mind that's part of this whole apparatus that kind of provides a way for this body to interact with the world. So what's in the mind comes out through our speech and our actions, for example. So if we keep identifying falsely, mistakenly, misunderstanding, having these misperceptions that this self-image or these things that we identify within the mind as being who we are as a person, then we're just inviting the mind to be shaken up. And there's countless things that the mind can grasp onto in terms of the self-image and the self-identity. You can think of our ethnicity, our gender, our sexual orientation, our occupation, our roles in society. All of these things oftentimes make up the identity of who somebody thinks they are. And then when you hear pleasing things, agreeable things, or disagreeable things related to any of these identities that the mind is holding on to, that's where it gets shaken up. Or the other thing that can happen is, say I identify as being an accountant, and I'm a really good accountant, and I take all this pride in being an accountant. Well, then when that job no longer exists, or I retire, or I get too old to do that, position perhaps I decide to move on, now the person can feel very lost and very empty inside, not really knowing who they are as a person because they've latched their identity onto this occupation, for example. And then people really struggle when they go into retirement or they get laid off of a job and they can't find that same job somewhere else if part of their identity is through their occupation and through their work and they hold on to that and they cling to it in the mind then they can really struggle when these things come and go because they're impermanent so we will have this self-image we will have a certain physical body that we need to take care of that we need to ensure that it's healthy and we might decide to look presentable when we go outside but it's when we cling to that self-image that the mind then opens itself up to discontentedness. Same thing, you know, we perform certain roles. We might be a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife. We have certain occupations. We do certain things in the world. But that's not the problem. The problem is, is when the mind clings to it and holds on to it. Have you ever been in a relationship with a person where you were boyfriend or a girlfriend and you really identified with being a boyfriend or girlfriend and you really enjoyed it you really reveled in it it really felt good to know that I have this boyfriend or I have this 
girlfriend. And then when you guys broke up, not only were you sad and maybe angry about the breakup, but now you feel kind of empty inside that you're no longer a boyfriend or girlfriend. And then you're in a situation where because of that emptiness, you just kind of grasp and long for the next person who comes along without taking your time and actually thinking about whether this partner would be a wise partner to be with. The mind is almost grasping and just trying to get that permanence where you can now assimilate to that role of being a boyfriend or girlfriend again. It's like the mind isn't comfortable just being single because it identified with being a boyfriend or girlfriend for so long. And this is the problem that happens when we have self-image or self-identity that the mind, as long as it's clinging to these things, thinking that this is who you are as a person, that I am a boyfriend or I am a girlfriend. Now, when that's impermanent and you don't have that anymore, this is where the mind becomes discontent because it's craving that permanence. And now it's likely to make unwise decisions, grasping at another man or grasping at another woman, just in order to get back to that role that the mind is craving so much. And this is how the mind just keeps causing itself to be discontent because it doesn't realize it doesn't have this wisdom. It doesn't understand true reality that these roles in this identity, these things that we do in the world, that's not who we are as a person because all of those things are impermanent. They're constantly changing. This self-image that the body has, whether it's certain clothes that we wear, a certain appearance that we have in our face or our hair, these things are always constantly changing. So if we allow the mind to cling to this physical body thinking this is who we are as a person, then it's only a matter of time before those things change and now the mind is shaken up because our appearance has changed and we are craving to look the way that we looked in the past. So the way to remedy all of this is to understand what personal existence view is, that it's this self-image and self-identity, and that this universal truth of non-self is that there is no self. There is a physical body. There is a mind. There is a certain being that's sitting here that we label as David, but that's not who I am as a person. If, if my stomach is big or my stomach is small, it doesn't change who I am as a person. Or if I'm a Buddhist teacher or I do landscaping or if I do trash collecting, it doesn't change who I am as a person. These are just roles that we fulfill in life in order to go forward in life and to sustain our life. And this is where the Buddhist says there is no permanent self or there is no self or it's also called non-self, the universal truth of non-self. So I'd like to pause here before I talk about conceit and see what questions you guys have on personal existence view. After you guys understand personal existence view and conceit, we're gonna talk about some other things related to this. And most of the class, we're gonna talk about how to eliminate them. But it's important that you first understand what these things are and the problems that they cause in the unenlightened mind so that then you understand like, oh yeah, let me get rid of all that stuff. Let me learn how to eliminate them. So until you understand what they are and the problems that they're causing, it doesn't make sense to talk about the elimination of them yet. So let's just be sure you understand what these things are that I'm talking about before we move on to conceit. So to ask your question, just put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom and someone will call on you to be sure you can ask your question. Hello, teacher. 
as for the first uh, feature, which is uh, the universal truth of non-self, one may wonders that if there is no me, if there is no I, then who is talking now? Who is listening now? Who is learning now? Okay, so the Buddha talks about three different things. He talks about the physical body. He talks about the consciousness or the mind. And then he talks about the person, that there is a person there. Okay, that's the third thing. So there's the physical body that is just made up of this tissue, these bones, this fluid. During the lifetime of the Buddha, they described it through the four elements of earth, wind, fire, and water. They just described it through these four elements, which we can talk about if you guys like. But you can just think about it as skin and bones and fluid. There's this physical structures that are here, this physical form. And then there's this consciousness or this mind, which is the second part that makes up what we're talking about here today. And then this third thing is the person. And that's what we're labeling. And that's what we tend to think of as this body and this mind. This is who we are as a person. And then we start adopting all of this self-identity and self-image around that. And then we start to project that into the world. And then when somebody says something agreeable, we feel these pleasant feelings. When someone says something disagreeable, we experience these painful feelings. Well, this may lead us to another question, which is, what is the purpose? What is the goal of this person or this human existence? I would suggest that we look at attaining enlightenment as being the purpose of our existence. There's a part in the very end of this book, the first volume, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, where I talk about the purpose of life, that there really is no purpose, that we have all these various activities, we have all these life-sustaining things that we do, we have these hobbies and activities, but this is just kind of filling up our life, that that's just what occupies our time. What we should really be aiming for is to eliminate this whole cycle of rebirth so that we're not reborn and that we can experience the rest of this life with a peaceful mind. But part of the challenge of this self-image and self-identity is that we've been told our whole life for a lot of us, you've got to be somebody in the world. You've got to leave your mark on society. You know, you've got to do something with your life. You've got to do this and you've got to change the world. And we take on all this burden of having to be a particular person that everybody's kind of trying to motivate us to be. We're told constantly to be somebody. But essentially what the universal truth of non-self is getting to is be a nobody. It's actually a lot harder to be a nobody than it is to be a somebody. Because to work at being a nobody means you have to dissolve this personal existence view and this conceit that we're going to talk about. So the challenge becomes is that we think that this physical body or this mind or this person, this being, that we've got to leave our mark on society. And if you look over history, like think about the last one or 200 years, how many people do you remember from the last you know, one or 200 years? There's not too many people. There's maybe like a handful of people that you can maybe count on one hand that you can actually remember. There's been billions and billions of people that have been born into the world over the last 100 or 200 years. But yet we kind of think because of this personal existence view and this conceit that somehow we need to leave our mark on society that everybody's going to remember us when we're dead and gone. 
And this is where we oftentimes get puffed up and we get very boastful. And then this causes complications in our relationships. But if you think about in true reality, as sad as it might be for you to hear, is 100 or 200 years from now, nobody's going to know who you are. Maybe even 50, 50 years from now, nobody's going to remember who you are. And if the mind is clinging to a self-image or self-identity or if the mind is conceit and you hear me say that, it might arise some sadness in your mind. And I didn't cause that sadness by saying that. It was the mind's craving to be somebody in the world. And it doesn't mean that we go around and that we just be complacent and we are lazy and we don't do anything in the world. That's not what the Buddha is teaching at all. Instead, we just realize that as long as we take on this burden of constantly trying to prove ourselves in the world, then the mind can't be at ease. The goal for this enlightened mind is to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. Essentially, the mind can be at ease. It can be calm. It can be relaxed. But as long as we have this burden on our shoulders or this chip on our shoulders, where we're going around trying to be somebody and prove ourselves to other people, then this burden is just going to weigh on the mind and this craving is going to keep causing the mind to be discontent because you can't constantly fulfill your expectations and the expectations of other people because these expectations are constantly changing because of impermanence. Your parents maybe give you one set of expectations and you meet those and then they add more and they add more and they add more. Your friends or your family or people around you are kind of pushing maybe and motivating you and trying to convince you to do one thing or the other. Or your own mind is trying to leave your mark on society. And as long as we do that, then the mind is having this burden of this craving of carrying around this burden. So we need to find that middle way where we're not completely lazy and complacent, but we're not going around with this craving to kind of prove ourselves to the world, but instead that we take care of the things we need to take care of as a human being and ensure that we work at being a nobody while maintaining confidence, right? We're not talking about getting rid of confidence here. So a being needs to be confident in order to be enlightened, but not having conceit along with that confidence. That's where the problem comes in. We haven't talked about conceit yet, but you guys can see it there, that it's arrogance and pride and judging, measuring and comparing as being superior or inferior. So one needs to maintain their confidence while working to just be an average person and just understand that we will work to accomplish things in the world. Yeah, we can work to fulfill certain tasks and help humanity and do things that we would like to do in the world in order to contribute to society. We can do that with confidence. But if we do that with conceit or this personal existence view, that's when we're going to be causing harm to our own mind and in our relationships and find that we're having struggles and difficulties. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. Okay. So this conceit that I just mentioned, this is the eighth fetter. This is part of the higher fetters that whenever you see arrogance or pride or the mind is wanting to judge others or judge yourself or measure and compare yourself as being superior, meaning above others, or inferior, being below others, this is dangerous to your own mind and it's dangerous to your relationships. Because as long as that conceit's in there, it's going to come out through our intentions, our speech, and our actions. The arrogance, pride, the judging, measuring and comparing as being above or below people, 
this is going to repel people away from you. Nobody enjoys being around someone who's arrogant or prideful or judging others. So as long as we allow the mind to continue to have this conceit, then it's going to struggle and have difficulties in our relationships. And if we're judging others, we're most often judging our own self too, and we're diminishing our mind, thinking that we're less of a person. And this is where you need to understand the uniqueness between personal existence view and conceit that we're not saying that you are a nobody and that you don't matter. That's not what we're saying. What I'm sharing with you is to find that middle where you can be confident and secure and being a person who contributes to society in whichever way you decide to do that, but don't assign your self-identity or your self-image as a result of what you maybe accomplish in one particular day or another. And then if you are accomplishing certain things, then don't have this arrogance or pride because as you progress on this path, you're going to have wisdom that other people in the world don't have. And it's really easy for the mind to have this arrogance and pride based on the wisdom that you have. Here, your mind is going to be gradually diminishing discontentedness more and more and more. And you understand things about the world and the natural laws of existence that other people don't understand. And it could be potentially easy for somebody to look down on others when you see people arguing or fighting or festering and think less of an individual because of the wisdom that you've acquired. But you can't get to enlightenment as long as the mind is doing that. So that's why as part of the higher fetters, you need to let go of this conceit and not only putting yourself above other people or feeling superior is dangerous to the mind and is going to repel people, but also considering yourself as inferior to other people or below other people. That's not helpful and beneficial to your mind either. If you've ever been around somebody that you highly admire, maybe like someone who was very prominent in your community, maybe someone who's very wealthy, maybe someone who has a lot of power, maybe a famous uh, celebrity or sports star, maybe a politician or something like this, or maybe even just your boss, if you've had a boss and you've felt like you're below this person. You might have trouble talking, you might have sweaty palms, your heart might have heart palpitations, you might have butterflies in your stomach. This is all the mind essentially helping you to see that the mind is shaken up, that it's uncalm, that it's not stable because the mind is considering itself to be inferior and below other people. So if we put ourselves above others feeling superior, this isn't going to be helpful. But if we put ourselves below others, this isn't helpful either. What you're working towards is developing a practice that is permanent, where the mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you think of yourself as above others, your intention, speech, and actions are going to be a certain way when you're around people who you consider to be below you. And additionally, if you feel like you're below people and you're looking up to some people, your mind is going to function in a very different way in terms of your intention, speech, and actions. And then your mind's going to have to constantly be switching between the two. Am I talking to someone who's above me or am I talking to someone who's below me? And then you're going to have to adjust your practice based on who you're talking to. And this shakes up the mind and it creates a real burden in the mind. But if you can get to a point where you're just a nobody, but you see everybody as equal. You see that the president of your country is just a human being who's 
functioning in a certain role, but they're not necessarily any better or any worse than you. They're just an average person just like you. No matter what that person thinks, in your mind, you need to think of this person who has a very high position or lots of power or lots of money or lots of wealth or lots of fame. You need to think of them as just an average person, just like anybody else. They've just had different situation and circumstances than you did in this particular life. And if there's somebody who's less fortunate in this world, uh, you need to think of them as being equal as well. But as long as we look to put ourselves above or below others, then the mind can't reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's always being shaken up trying to figure out, is this person above me or below me? And where this comes from is this comes from our countless animal existences that we are used to having this pecking order in the animal world. And that's there for survival. And this is also where personal existence view comes from as well. It comes from our countless animal existences. Because as an animal, we need to have this personal existence view. Because with personal existence view, as long as that's there, there's going to be a certain amount of fear associated with your existence. And a deer in the forest, if it let go of its personal existence view, it would no longer look out for predators and it would be killed pretty much immediately. And Likewise, with this conceit in our animal existences, when we were a herd of wolves or a herd of elephants or we were a, a part of a, a group of monkeys or gorillas or what have you, there's the alpha male or the alpha female. And these two individuals were more wise and had more understanding within our pack or herd of animals. And they kind of looked out for everybody and allowed everybody to kind of be at ease because we knew who the alpha male and alpha females are in our in our pack of animals. But then what happens is we come into this human world and we have the same mentality of who's the alpha and who's above me and who's below me looking for this pecking order. And it doesn't really work in the human world because it doesn't feel comfortable for people to have arrogance and putting themselves above us. And it doesn't feel comfortable for people who are below us or perceiving themselves as being below us. Because if somebody was putting themselves as being inferior to you, their mind would be shaken up and have challenges probably interacting with you. And you might not feel that this person is trustworthy or that they're confident or that you can give them certain projects. So if you walk around with arrogance, then people aren't going to feel good about that and they're not going to feel uh, like you are a person who's just kind of assimilating into the group and kind of looking out for the betterment of the group. Instead, there's this pride, this arrogance wanting to be on top. And likewise, if we consider ourselves below others, then we're going to lack this confidence and our mind's going to be shaken up. So when opportunities come along where they're personal or professional opportunities, your boss or your friends or your coworkers might feel reluctant to give you a project because you're lacking confidence and you're feeling like you're inferior to others. And you might struggle to kind of exist in a world where you're looking at yourself as above or below others. But if you can look at everybody as being equal and interact with everybody as equals, now your mind can just practice the right intentions, right speech, and right actions, and just treat everybody equally and everybody being the same. And now your mind can be at ease because you don't have to figure out, am I talking to someone above me or below me? Instead, you can just 
function in the same way with all beings, having this permanent, wholesome practice of the Eightfold Path. So let's see what questions you guys have around conceit. Let's go to Nick. Yes, sir. Breaks it on Facebook has a question. He writes, Venerable teacher, where does conceit fit in the dependent origination? Like conceit as a cause of suffering? Is it the same or different from name and form? Okay, so conceit is a part of the fetters and the where it shows up on dependent origination is part of ignorance or unknowing of true reality that very top line of dependent origination because if there's ignorance if there's this unknowing of true reality that there is no self then the volitional formations or choices and decisions are going to be motivated out of that so that's part of the ignorance or unknowing of true reality and when you gain the wisdom to understand the universal truth of non-self and that we need to develop the mind to eliminate this conceit and this personal existence view, then your volitional formations or your choices and decisions will be based on the wisdom of having that in the mind and you won't project this self-image and self-identity in the world being shaken up and you won't have this arrogance and pride being shaken up as well. But as long as there's this ignorance in the mind about the 10 fetters and the universal truth of non-self, then your volitional formations or your choices and decisions are going to continue to be motivated out of these unwholesome qualities of personal existence view and conceit. Well, so as for uh, conceit, which is the eighth fetter, do you suggest that one works, uh, uh, works on the first seven fetters prior to starting working on conceit? Or working with all these fetters together? I suggest that someone understands these fetters and what they are and if you have the other parts of this practice in terms of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all that other stuff, the extensive meditation training, if you're starting to get your arms around that, then wherever you see personal existence view or conceit arise, you can always cut it off and let it go, which is part of the eightfold path if you remember the mental discipline of right effort right mindfulness and right concentration so now that you're becoming aware of what personal existence view and conceit is with mindfulness or awareness of mind where you see either of these raise up in the mind you can then apply right effort to cut them off and let them go but then what you're going to hear in today's class is there's a whole host of things that you can be doing on a consistent, ongoing basis in order to eliminate personal existence, view, and conceit. And these are things that you might decide to get to later on. It's up to you when you decide to approach these. With personal existence view, I think it really makes sense to get your arms around that once you're in the jhanas, like I always say. With conceit, it's a higher fetter because it's really challenging to let go of this arrogance and pride, particularly if someone has had this in their mind for a really long time and they're really puffed up or has a lot of boastfulness in the mind. So because it takes so long to eradicate conceit, you don't necessarily have to wait until you're in the jhanas to start working on it. You can just be aware of what it is and then wherever you see it arise in the mind, cut it off and let it go. But then as I share the practices with you today 
to help you eliminate personal assistance view and conceit, you can implement those at whatever point along the path you would like because those are going to help to slowly wear away personal existence view and conceit. So where somebody chooses to really address these is up to each individual. But what I observe with personal existence view is it takes a lot of conversations, a lot of study, a lot of uh, discussion typically for the average student to understand what this is and to be able to really actively work towards it. And having the work done of the Eightfold Path and putting that together is kind of like preparing the mind to be ready to let go of personal existence view in conceit. You wouldn't be able to just start this path and then one week later eliminate the 10 fetters and start focusing on the 10 fetters. There needs to be this foundational practice established where you're working on kind of softening up the mind with all these other teachings like breathing mindfulness meditation, generosity, all the other things. You need to improve those aspects of your practice before the mind would be willing or able to let go of something like personal existence view. So eliminating conceit means eliminating pride. Does this mean that one shouldn't be proud of success or achievements in life? Yes, that's 100% correct, which is very opposite of what we've been taught our whole life, is we've been taught to be proud of our children, be proud of our accomplishments, be proud of the things that we get. But that pride then starts to affect our intentions, our speech, and our actions, and now the mind becomes diluted with this pride. Instead, what we need to do is we need to find the middle where we're actively working to accomplish certain things in the world. We actively work to help our children to accomplish things in the world, but we don't revel in that success, that we don't indulge in that success, that we just see it as part of the wise decisions that we've been making along the way, and we're just working towards doing these things. So rather than be complacent and not working to improve our life, or rather than being prideful, that we've accomplished certain things in life, it's better to be in the middle where the mind can reside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, it can be stable. Because you're not always gonna be able to accomplish certain things in the world. Whereas if we take pride in our children being a certain way, or we take pride in our occupation, then there's gonna be this arrogance of looking down on other people. In order to have pride about what we're doing, we need to be judging other people. We need to judge ourselves. We need to judge other people because now we feel like we've accomplished something better than others. So therefore, let's be prideful about it. Whereas if you eliminate the judging and the measuring and the comparing and you just realize that you're on this journey of life and you're just making decisions along the way to teach your children, to help them accomplish things, and you're working to accomplish things, you'll accomplish plenty of things in the world, but we don't need to take pride in it in order to continue to accomplish those things. By taking pride in what we do, it means that we're putting ourselves mentally above others. And that's why we're prideful, because we feel like we've accomplished something more than others. So there's a middle way here where we're not lazy and complacent, but we're not prideful and arrogant about the things that we accomplish in the world either, but we can just reside in the middle and just work towards our goals, objectives, and interests. Any advice about how to eliminate the judging and measuring? That's what we're going to be talking about as we go in today's class. This is just to understand what it is and the challenges that it causes us in our life. No more question, teacher. Okay. 
So let's go on to the next thing that I would like to share with you guys to help you see a bit more of how the ego stands in the way. Because now that you understand that personal existence view, this self-image and self-identity with conceit, this arrogance, pride, this judging, measuring, and comparing, these two things combined is what we're calling the ego. The Buddha separated them out. Uh, well, actually, there was no word ego, so he described them in the way that he described them, but we're kind of combining them in our modern times and calling it the ego. But it really helps to separate the two, as we just talked about, so that you can see them because the impact of how they impact our life is different between the two, similar but different. And how we remedy and how we address the two are different. There's different ways to resolve personal existence view and dissolve the conceit. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. But now that you understand that what we're describing as the ego is personal existence view and conceit, now let's talk a little bit more about how ego stands in the way of us seeing true reality and being able to have wholesome and harmonious and peaceful relationships. What this ego does because of this self-image and self-identity that we're projecting in the world as unenlightened beings and this arrogance or this pride, this judging, measuring and comparing as being superior and inferior, we oftentimes project certain unwholesome qualities onto others and then we read that reflection as if it's coming from the other person when actually it's coming from our own mind. So we might have certain unwholesome qualities in our mind, and then when we see somebody, we kind of project that onto them, and then we kind of read that as that's actually them, when in reality it's coming from our own mind. Giving you an example of this, let's just say you were in a business meeting, and some lady or some man came in, fairly young, very handsome, very beautiful, you know, really nice skin tone, made their hair really nice, wearing very sharp clothes, look very beautiful clothing. Maybe they even have some cologne or perfume on, maybe some jewelry, and they just look amazing, right? And if that person walks in and our mind immediately thinks, look at them trying to look so nice. Oh, you know, they're, they're just trying to look so wonderful, right? And then the mind becomes jealous because of this person. This is the mind projecting its own unwholesome quality of wanting to look good in the world. And then when you see somebody walking in, now the mind starts judging this person as, oh, they're a bad person. They're unwholesome because they've got a nice haircut. They've got nice clothing. They've got nice skin tone. So they're a bad person because that's what they're doing. When in reality, all that's actually happened is a person just walked into the room. That's all that's happened here is a person walked into the room, but our own mind having this unknowing of true reality, this ignorance, this delusion, this confusion, this misunderstanding, the ego stands in the way of seeing this person as just another human being. We start attributing this desire that we have to look so wonderful in the world that now when this beautiful or handsome human being walks in the world, we start projecting all these unwholesome qualities onto them. And now we kind of look out with fear and kind of look at them as a bad person. And now when we're in a business meeting and they speak up and they contribute their ideas, maybe we look down on them or we discount them or we talk harsh and aggressive towards them. And it doesn't just affect 
our relationship with that individual. But there's other people in the room too that are observing our arrogance and our and our, our way of interacting with this person that it damages those relationships too. So we've got to watch the mind that this self-image, this self-identity, this personal existence view, wanting to be a certain way in the world, when you perceive somebody else who's maybe trying to take your spot, then you might project certain unwholesome qualities that are in your own mind. So if you want to be the very best dad or the very best mom or the very best boyfriend, the very best girlfriend, the very best son, the very best daughter, when you interact with somebody who you're perceiving who's of that same identity, now your mind struggles and kind of looks out at this person almost like an enemy because you might feel that they're kind of trying to take your position, so to speak, because you're trying to project a certain image or a certain identity into the world. And this arrogance and this pride, this measuring, comparing and judging is going to just put harshness between you and other people. So it's this judgment of attempting to determine of what is right and wrong for other people while placing yourself above them with arrogance and pride that is going to continue to cause harshness and problems in your relationships. You're not going to be able to have wholesome and harmonious relationships with all people because you're as long as you have this personal existence view and this conceit, then you're going to kind of look out at the world almost, you know, kind of waiting for an enemy to come along. And once you identify that enemy, you might project these unwholesome qualities onto that person when in reality it's coming from your own mind. And this inhibits you from being able to have open and loving and caring and wholesome relationships with all people. There are certain perceptions or beliefs or opinions that we have about how things seem. So when this person walks in wearing these very beautiful clothes, smelling so wonderful, having this great jewelry, this nice haircut, the mind perceives this or has certain beliefs or opinions about this person because of one's own judgment, because of our own self-image, because of our own self-identity, because of our own arrogance and pride, we perceive that in a way that isn't truly there because we can't know what's in the mind of that other person. And it's not our responsibility to look out for people who are wholesome and unwholesome and try to judge and determine who is wholesome and unwholesome. Instead, when that person walks in the room, we need to see true reality, which is just a person walked into the room. That's all that's happened there. The fact that they have certain clothing on or certain hairstyle or certain jewelry or what have you, so what? That's their personal choice that we shouldn't have any kind of judgment or any kind of perceptions about this individual based on what they're choosing to do in the world because that's their choices of what clothes, what jewelry, how they choose to carry themselves. That's their choices in the world and we're not here to try to convince other people to be a certain way. Instead, we're looking to have harmonious and peaceful relationships with all beings. And we can't do that as long as the mind is holding on to a self-image, self-identity, which is personal existence view. And we can't do that having harmonious and peaceful relationships as long as there's arrogance and pride, this measuring and comparing, this judging, this looking down on others with this conceit or looking up to others with this conceit. Another thing that can happen with this arrogance or 
this pride and these things that we're talking about today is the mind can project certain wholesome qualities onto certain people. And it can kind of crave permanence, expecting others to be the same way as you. That if you're on this path to enlightenment and you're cultivating your mind in a certain way, the mind can kind of expect and crave for other people to be the same way. And now it can be shaken up because of that when we're judging other people and we're saying, oh, they're not as wise as me or their moral conduct is so unwholesome I, I wouldn't associate with somebody like that or you know looking down on people with this arrogance or pride instead of trying to do that which then ends up motivating us to sometimes control others like control our boyfriend or control our girlfriend control our parents or our children that we want them to be wholesome we're expecting them to be wholesome and then when they're not we get angry, we get frustrated, we get irritated because they're not a certain way. This arrogance, this pride, this measuring and comparing people, it inhibits us from having true love, which is what we talked about last week. It inhibits us from just loving people as they are because we have these certain wholesome qualities that the mind is projecting on the others and wanting them to perform a certain way rather than just loving them as they are. And what oftentimes can happen is when we see that people aren't meeting our expectations, we then try to control them and want them to be a certain way. Or if we don't do that, we end up ending relationships because they're not a certain way and we feel like we can't associate with this person and we need to push them away with aversion, thinking that they are unwholesome, therefore uh, we can't associate with this person and you know, thinking that they're below us. So you see here, as we're talking, that this ego just serves no purpose, that it keeps rearing its head up in the mind and just causing complication after complication after complication. I explain more of this in chapter 16 and helping you see the struggles and difficulties that these cause in the mind. You can almost think of the ego as like a bad tenant. If you had a house that you were going to rent and you rented it to somebody and they moved in and they made themselves really comfortable, but they never actually paid rent and they just made themselves so comfortable in your house, this is what the ego does. Is it in the mind? It's making itself really comfortable. It wants to stick around. There's no benefit whatsoever to this ego. And every time you try to kick out this bad tenant out of your house, it finds a way to stick around and it's just kind of keeps convincing you that it's gone when it's really not and this ego is like this bad tenant that it moves in it makes itself really comfortable and it doesn't want to leave and it tries to convince you that you're actually more enlightened and more wise than you really are and by doing that then the ego can stick around because as long as you think you're wise, as long as you think you're so enlightened, then this ego is going to keep sticking around and having this arrogance and pride looking down on other people. And this is just going to continue to create more and more difficulties and struggles in our life. So we need to evict this ego out of the mind and get it to the point where it's not there any longer. That the personal existence view has been eliminated and this conceit has been eliminated. We've kick this bad tenant out of the house and we don't let it come back at all costs. No matter what, wherever we see this ugliness of the self-image wanting to project itself out in the world 
or we see this self-identity of the mind wanting to hold on to certain attributes of the mind, we cut that off, we let it go, we don't allow the mind to indulge in that. Or if we see this arrogance and pride, this judging, this measuring and comparing, wherever we see that, we kick it out of the mind. It's just like kicking out that bad tenant that wherever we see that bad tenant show up, we've got to get them out of this house because they're not contributing any benefit and if you don't kick this bad tenant out, you're going to go bankrupt and you're going to lose everything in your life. Where the same thing is if we allow this ego, this conceit to continue and pervade in the mind, then we're going to just damage relationship after relationship and we're going to find it a real struggle in the world. So what I'd like to do is spend the rest of our time together talking about how to dissolve the ego and breaking it down into personal existence view and conceit. So I've got a number of different things here to share with you to help you see how to eliminate personal existence view and conceit. And depending on how much you've looked at this in the past or how much you're aware of this, some of these things might sound a little bit odd or a little bit strange to you. And that's just because the mind hasn't been exposed to these kind of things before. You might not even have been aware of this self or this personal existence view that the mind has been carrying around. You might not even been aware of some of this arrogance and pride that the mind has been carrying around and the complications that it's causing. So as we go through these various ways that you can practice in order to eliminate personal existence view and conceit, feel free to ask questions, but just know that some of the things might sound a little bit odd if you haven't been exposed to this type of training before. The first one for personal existence view is to receive guidance on how to use the meditation in chapter 11 to realize non-self. In chapter 11, I've touched on it and I've mentioned that there is this meditation to realize non-self, but I mentioned like that's something that you'll potentially get to later as you start moving into the jhana. So you're going to need guidance on how to do that. It's explained in chapter 11 and there's typically a few conversations that you need to have with your teacher to ensure that you first intellectually understand what personal existence view is and that you understand what the universal truth of non-self is before you start actually practicing this meditation. You wouldn't be able to just start practicing this meditation and eliminate the self. It doesn't work that way. You need to have a certain level of intellectual learning. There needs to be some reflection on that over a few conversations and then need to move it into practice through something like doing meditation to realize non-self. And that would be done after you've already developed a number of other aspects of your practice. Then you would need to look at changing your language and the way that you speak because the way that you speak is how the mind thinks. Right now you might think about it as this is my house or my car or my job, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my children, right? All of these things are mine, 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 mine. This is the mind holding on to this self-image, this self-identity and holding on to this personal existence view that all these things are mine. And there's selfishness in there too, to a certain degree. So certain relationships, certain objects, certain situations in your life, you know, this is my job. But what you need to do is you need to change that and take the my or the mine out of that. 
So instead, start to disassociate with this being my car or my boyfriend or my girlfriend, my kids. Because as long as they're my kids, then the mind is going to want to control these beings to be a certain way. Or as long as it's my car, now I start associating a certain self-image or a certain self-identity with this car. But instead, what you should transform this to is this is the car, right? This is the house. This is the place where I work. Instead of mine, 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 start to change your language and take the my out of it. And this will help you to kind of distance the mind and disassociate it with holding on to all these things that are accumulated into being your self-image and your self-identity. Be sure that you deeply develop the perception of impermanence through observation of impermanence in the world. If you haven't already done this, you need to deeply understand that all these things are impermanent. The house is impermanent. The car is impermanent. Your children are impermanent. Your job is impermanent. Your clothes are impermanent. All these things that are around us, they're all impermanent. Because if you understand impermanence and you deeply have it soaked into the mind, then you would understand that this physical body can't be who you are as a person. It can't be the permanent self because it's impermanent. And likewise, this mind can't be who you are as a person because it's impermanent as well. So if you deeply soak into the mind by looking through all the things that you do in a given day and observing impermanence inside and out, backwards and forwards, then there's nothing your mind can grab onto and say, this is me. This is who I am. Because you can't grab on and permanently cling to something that is impermanent. If we think that this physical body is our permanent self, well, isn't this body impermanent? So how could this body be the permanent self? And this mind, how could this mind be the permanent self when it is impermanent? So once we deeply soak in the universal truth of impermanence into the mind and we see that throughout our life and throughout the world, then the mind can't cling on to anything and claim anything as being mine. Another thing that you can do is wear simple clothing and make your appearance very simple. Certain clothing, jewelry, makeup, scents, facial hair, these are all things that you can do to be very simple and very basic. And this is why the Buddha, during his lifetime, he just wore rags. He wore, you know, robes, essentially. And oftentimes practitioners will shave their hair and uh, get rid of any kind of semblance of a personal existence view or this self-image or this self-identity. Because the mind wants to project a certain image through wearing certain clothes, certain jewelry, certain makeup, certain scents, certain facial or head hair, and we want to project these things into the world thinking this is who we are as a person. But these things aren't who we are as a person. So one of the things you can do with your clothing if you're not interested in wearing rags like the Buddha did is you can take your clothes if you have pants and shirts or whatever it is you wear, dresses or skirts, and you can just stack them up in a stack and then you can just pick the one off the top and just wear that that particular day. And then the next day, just pick the next one off of the top and wear that one. But what happens is the mind doesn't want to do that. 
It wants to stand in front of the closet and think about where am I going today? Who am I going to see? What do I want to look like when I see those people? What colors do I would like to pick? And then sometimes we even put two or three different shirts on before we go out of the house because the mind is almost obsessed about looking a certain way when we are interacting with certain people in the world. So the way that you get the mind out of that and you don't allow the mind to select the clothing is you just stack your clothes up and you just pick whichever one is on top and you just wear that one. And then if you pick it off the top and you're like, oh, I'm going to see this person today. I don't think I want to wear this. And then you want to put it back down and switch the clothes. That's the mind trying to project a certain self-image and have a certain self-identity. But what you've got to train the mind to do is just pick the one off the top. And it might be a challenge. It might be a struggle for you to do that. And you might do that for three months or six months or even a year. And then eventually you might decide to go back to selecting your own clothing and not having this situation go on. But it becomes so easy for you to just pick the one off the top. You might end up just sticking with it. But the mind's going to want to get in there. It's going to want to project a certain self-image and certain self-identity. And you're trying to transform that and say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you do that, mind, right? Because there's this physical body, there's this mind, and then there's the person. The person is telling the mind, no, I'm not going to let you pick your clothes today. I'm going to just pick the ones on top and go out into the world and know that these clothes aren't who I am as a person. And I'm going to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter who I interact with and what clothes I have on and how they may or may not perceive me. I'm just going to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter what I'm wearing and what people might say about the clothing that I'm wearing. So this is one of the ways that you can use the mind to set it aside and say, no, I'm not going to let you pick this clothing. And you can just stack up your clothing and just pick whichever one's on top. Whenever you see the self-image and self-identity coming up, like while you're selecting clothes or while you're talking on the phone or when you're in conversations, you need to cut it off and let it go. Where the mind is trying to project a certain self-image or if you're observing that there's pleasant feelings or painful feelings coming into the mind because of the self-image or self-identity, you hear certain agreeable things or disagreeable things, and this arises discontentedness, you have to cut that off and let it go. More and more, you'll start observing the bodily sensations that are occurring before discontentedness becomes feelings in the mind. And if you can cut it off at the bodily sensations, then you're going to save yourself a whole lot of trouble. So if you happen to wear something and a coworker or a friend or a family member is like, oh, you look so beautiful today, you look so handsome. If you experience pleasant feelings as a result of that, you're going to notice these bodily sensations first. And if you can catch it there and cut it off, you might still say to the person, thank you so much, I appreciate your kindness or whatever you might say to the person. But what you would like to avoid is the mind arising these pleasant feelings based on this agreeable contact of this compliment that has come to you because of your self-image. Because if you allow the mind to indulge in those pleasant feelings, it's only a matter of time before somebody else is like, oh, that color doesn't look so good on you. Why did you decide to wear that? 
And now the mind's going to experience these painful feelings as a result of hearing that. So wherever you observe these bodily sensations arising in the body or feelings in the mind because of the self-image or self-identity, you need to cut it off and let it go so that then you train the mind to no longer allow these conditioned pleasant feelings or these conditioned painful feelings to arise and you can get to a point where the mind can hear an agreeable comment oh you look so handsome today oh thank you so much i appreciate that or you're so kind you're so friendly but in the mind the mind remains humble the mind remains content it remains stable or somebody says oh where did you get that shirt from and then rather than be like why you don't like it you know you can Talk to this person or respond however you would like rather than reacting with anger or hostility or any kind of frustration or irritation. So cut off those discontent feelings that are starting to arise either as bodily sensations or feelings because then it's going to start affecting the condition of the mind and it's going to start forming mental objects. And then seek guidance with the teacher over multiple sessions to better and better understand what personal existence view is and how to realize non-self. We talk about this universal truth of non-self, but in order to get to enlightenment, you need to realize non-self. What realizing non-self is, is to eliminate personal existence view. If someone has eliminated personal existence view, they've realized non-self, meaning their mind realizes that there is no self, not just on an intellectual level, but the way that you're practicing the teachings, that you're no longer experiencing discontent feelings arising based on this personal existence view because the mind has eliminated it. If the mind eliminates personal existence view and has realized non-self, then when you hear something agreeable about the self-image or the self-identity, there will be no conditioned pleasant feelings. And if you hear something disagreeable about the self-image or self-identity, and you've eliminated this personal existence view, you've realized non-self, then there won't be any sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, or any other feelings when somebody talks negatively about you in terms of your self-identity or self-image because those things won't be there anymore. You'll have certain clothes on, you'll have certain jewelry on, but when somebody talks agreeable or disagreeable, positive or negative about these things, your mind knows that that's not who you are as a person. So you're not going to allow your mind to go into these conditioned pleasant feelings or these conditioned painful feelings. And likewise, if you identify with being the very best dad or the very best mom, the very best employee, that you are a citizen of France, you're a citizen of Egypt, you're an American citizen, you're this or you're that, if you've eliminated that from the mind, you know that you were born in France, you know you were born in Egypt, you know you were born in America, but you don't identify with this is who you are as a person, then when somebody talks positive about these things or they talk negative about them, it won't affect your mind. You can be completely stable and steady regardless of what people say about your nationality, about your ethnicity, about your sexual orientation, about your appearance, about your self-identity or any of these things. Even being a Buddhist, this is why I share with people that I don't even consider myself to be a Buddhist 
because this is just a label. The Buddha himself wasn't a Buddhist, and Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian. These are just labels that we've come up with later. And as long as our mind grabs onto this as part of our self-identity, if you consider yourself a Buddhist and you've adopted that as part of your self-identity, well, when someone speaks glowingly about Buddhist, oh, all these pleasant feelings. But when someone talks negatively about it, then there's all these painful feelings. So you understand that, hey, I'm a practitioner of these teachings and I'm working on training the mind, but I don't identify with this word Buddhist, right? Because this is just a label. So let me see what questions you guys have about these here with personal existence view. And then after we discuss these, we'll talk about the ones related to conceit. So you can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand to ask any questions. Well, so after eliminating the ego, does this mean that there is no soul? Do you consider soul and uh, ego the same thing? Self and soul the same thing? In terms of the teachings about a soul, the Buddha left this as an undeclared teaching. He never declared whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. And I can share most likely the reason why is because it conflicts with the universal truth of non-self, that there is no permanent self. So the Buddha didn't say there is a soul, there isn't a soul, he just didn't teach about it. And he says very clearly, he says, I'm leaving this as an undeclared teaching. Remember this as an undeclared teaching. Because if there is a soul, the way that we think about a soul is this kind of permanent entity that kind of goes through various iterations of existence. And maybe after we die, there's this soul that continues. Well, that would be a permanent self if there was a soul. So the Buddha didn't discuss or declare any teachings around a soul at all. Let's go to Nick. Yes, teacher. Question Question from Parikshit on Facebook. He writes, Venerable teacher, how does one remove lust? Repressing lust creates more lust. How does Lord Buddha tell us to eliminate lust without repressing them? Because most of the times we hear people say, with conceit, removing lust is not possible. We would be repressing it. Okay, so if we define lust as central desire for sexual intercourse, then we can see that it's a desire of the mind. And this is part of the fourth fetter of central desire. If there's arrogance or pride that, wow, look at me, I'm so sexually active and I'm able to have sexual intercourse so easily, then that's where the arrogance can be on top of that central desire and that lust. So it's important to get rid of the arrogance and the ego around that. But ultimately, in order to get to enlightenment, someone would need to get rid of the lust or the central desire to have sexual intercourse. But this is something that someone might choose to do at a later time because in that first and second stage of enlightenment, an individual is still going to have central desire. So you can actually make your way up to the first and second stage of enlightenment while still having sexual activity. And for some people who are younger, they might 
decide that that's something they would like to continue to do because they're still experiencing it. They just kind of started having sex in the last five or 10 years. So maybe they're not interested in letting it go yet. So they might make their way up to the first and second stage of enlightenment and kind of hang out there for a while. And if somebody is in a relationship where they're choosing to have kids, maybe they haven't had children yet and they would like to do that before they eliminate the central desire to have sexual intercourse. So it's important to understand that we need to decide on an individual basis of when or if we decide to let go of central desire. That's going to be different for each individual person. But at the point where we do choose to let go of central desire and we're choosing to move into that third or fourth stage of enlightenment, if there's conceit there, you know, that needs to be gotten rid of as well. Because if you have conceit about your sexual intercourse, then you've got to get rid of the arrogance first. And then once you have done that, you would be interested to let go of the sexual intercourse through training the mind to develop the unattractiveness of the body. This is part of a meditation that I talk about in chapter 11. So you can see it in the book. You can see it in the online classes that I've taught around chapter 11, where you can develop the unattractiveness of the body because the reason why we have lust or we are interested in having sexual intercourse is because we don't see the body as it truly is. We see this outer shell of the skin and the hair and the clothing and everything else that we put into beautifying this body that we are attracted to it. And the way that the Buddha taught in order to train the mind to let go of sexual intercourse is to train the mind to understand the unattractiveness of the body. And that's a whole nother set of teaching that I can share with you at another time. But as it relates to this topic, you would need to get rid of the conceit first before you would probably be able to let go of the sexual intercourse. But you can also be doing those things at the same time as well. Well, on Zoom, Jeanne has a question. She writes, thank you, Dr. David. Would you please talk about the difference between eliminating judgment of others and recognizing unskillful speech or unwholesome behavior in others? Whenever we see judging of other people or even we're judging ourselves, we should cut that off and let it go. Realize that it's unwholesome and it's only harming our own mind. That when we look at other people and we try to determine whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, in terms of looking out at people and putting ourselves as being superior or inferior, this is only going to degrade our own mind and it's hurting ourselves. And we need to see that because oftentimes if we're judging others, we're judging ourselves too. And we feel quite diminished in certain situations where we're looking negatively at ourselves, And that's because we're judging others as well. So we need to let go of both of those and eliminate both of those where the mind is no longer interested in judging ourselves or judging others, having expectations of others to be a certain way. But instead, we need to practice true love, which is what I taught last week as part of chapter 15, is learn how to love people as they are and just love all beings. This is very important. In terms of our speech and our actions, they can be motivated out of this judgment. If we're looking down on people or we're looking up to people or we're diminishing ourselves, then our intentions, our speech and actions are going to be emanating and motivated by that judgment that's in the mind. So that pollution of conceit is going to now motivate unskillful intention, speech and actions. And this is where 
in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha provides what right intention is and what right speech is and what right action is. And that's why before we get to eliminating these fetters, a practitioner needs to fully develop the Eightfold Path first as a starting point on this path, is that you wouldn't be able to just eliminate conceit, for example, if you're still having wrong speech. So when the Buddha taught a student, he would always teach the moral conduct first, that a person needs to improve right speech, right action, and right livelihood and clean up their decisions in that area of their life before they can actually work on all the other areas of this path to improve the condition of one's mind and one's life. So as long as there's conceit in the mind, then there's going to be this unskillful speech and actions but you should be working on those things first as part of establishing a foundation in the Eightfold Path, get that really well developed. You're going to start seeing the mind move into those jhanas. And then as you are, then that's where I suggest that somebody really focus in on the fetters, even though now you're starting to learn about some of the fetters and you can be doing some preliminary work. You really would like to start focusing in on them like a microscope as you start experiencing the jhanas because the jhanas are there to give you an indication that you've put together the foundation of the Eightfold Path really, really well. That's what the jhanas essentially help the mind understand that, aha, you're doing something pretty well or you wouldn't have gotten to the jhanas. And it's helping you to see that you're putting together the practice of the full path really well. And then once you start seeing the qualities of mind of the jhanas start to come in to the mind, that's where you start really focusing on these 10 fetters and particularly the personal existence view, doubt about the teachings and wrong grasp of behavior and observances, those first three fetters, which will help you get into the first stage of enlightenment. Well, after emanating the self, what is the thing that experiences discontentedness? It's the mind. It's the consciousness. It's always the mind that is experiencing discontentedness. It's not the self. The self is a misconception. It's a false belief. It's a misperception. The mind thinks that there is a self. This is part of the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The unenlightened mind is falsely thinking, mistakenly understanding, has this misperception that there is a self. And that's part of that ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So when you get rid of that and you realize non-self and you fully deeply understand and you're practicing in such a way where you know that there is no self, that this physical body and this mind is not the self, then there's still going to be discontentedness in the mind. When you've eliminated those first three fetters and you've gotten to the first stage of enlightenment, there's still going to be discontentedness, but it's going to be significantly diminished. And that discontentedness is being experienced in the mind. But at that point, you're no longer experiencing discontentedness because of personal existence view. You're now experiencing discontentedness based on other craving, desire, attachments that you have in the mind. So 
getting rid of those first three fetters is going to significantly diminish discontentedness, but there's still going to be discontentedness there. And it's all in the mind because of craving, desire, attachment. That mental longing with strong eagerness is causing the mind to be discontent and it's shaken up during those times. And that's where by the time you've gotten to the first stage of enlightenment, you have all the tools that you need at that point to now make your way the rest of the way through the second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's talk about eliminating conceit, this aspect of the ego. And once again, there's things here that I'll be sharing with you that you may not have heard in other teachings or if you haven't been exposed to how to eliminate the ego these might be things that you haven't heard before and they might sound a little bit odd or a little bit strange but if you understand them or you have questions about them i will help you along to understand and answer your questions so you understand how these work conceit to dissolve this there are certain practices that you're going to want to incorporate into your life practice Things like saying thank you often. And you can even say please and thank you often, right? This helps the mind to practice being humble because that's what we're trying to do here is to counteract and transform this arrogance, this pride, this puffing up, this boastfulness. We're trying to train the mind to be humble and down to earth. So by saying please and thank you, just these simple things, if you're not doing that, that can be one aspect of your practice to help the mind to be more humble. Doing things like sleeping on the floor in a low position. The Buddha talks about this in his teachings and you may know that here in Asia a lot of people sleep really low to the floor. It doesn't mean you need to sleep in an uncomfortable position like on a wooden floor but if you take your bed and your mattress and you move it down really low kind of like at knee height or lower than your knees. For me I just got rid of the frame, the, you know, everything, and I just put the mattress right on the floor. And that could be a way for you to sleep in a low position. If your bed is up really high and you've got all these luxurious pillows and blankets and all these things, then the mind is going to tend to be boastful. And you'll see this, that when you put the bed down on the floor, it might sound odd or strange to some of you if you've never practiced this before, but just getting in and out of bed multiple times as you go to the bathroom, as you prepare for bed, as you wake up in the morning and things like this, going down to the floor and getting up from the floor, it can train the mind to be very humble. Here in Asia, if you go to a furniture store in Thailand, I don't think I've ever even seen a bed that is up really high in the furniture stores. All the beds are, are quite low. But for me, I wasn't even interested in having a, a frame. I just got rid of all that stuff, even the headboard and everything, and just put the mattress down on the floor. So you don't have to be uncomfortable, but you would just like to set up a situation where you have to get down into bed and you have to get up out of bed and kind of using your knee height as an example at your knee or lower would be ideal. If you have any certain tasks that you feel are beneath you, you can do these tasks in order to train the mind to actually do them. At one time, as a single person and growing up, I used to you know, cook and clean, clean toilets, uh, vacuum, do my laundry, all of these kinds of things. But as I aged and I started to become wealthy as a business person, I started being able to hire employees and 
hire maids and people to take care of all these different things. And even when I would go into the office and I would pick up a mop or a vacuum, my employees would take it out of my hand. They couldn't stand seeing me vacuum or mop because they felt like they weren't doing their job. But then at some point, I kind of allowed that to create some arrogance and pride in the mind where I started thinking that these things were below me, things like washing dishes and stuff like that. So when I started observing this about the mind and that I was doing this, the way that I got rid of that is I started washing dishes and I started cleaning toilets and I started sweeping the floor. I started vacuuming. I started doing these things because at one time, the mind, even though I used to do them as a child and as a young adult, I got to some point in my life where I didn't have to do those things and I had other people to do them for me and I allowed that arrogance and pride to come into the mind. So when I observed that, then I started doing those tasks in order to train the mind to do these things and to not think of these things as being below me, but instead that I'm just an average person, I'm just like everybody else. Even though at one time I was a business person and I was very wealthy, that's all in the past. I no longer have that type of lifestyle. Even today, right before class, I was scrubbing the shower and cleaning the bathroom and in there doing that kind of work and take joy in doing that actually and and really enjoying cleaning because at one time in my life, I used to really enjoy cleaning and scrubbing a toilet and washing dishes and these kind of things. But somewhere along the line, my mind allowed itself to wrap around this arrogance and pride and that's where the mind becomes boastful and arrogant and almost walking around with a chip on your shoulder. And if you see anything like that in your life, then start doing those things that you might feel that are beneath you. Listen to others teach you wisdom without any interest to teach them. This is something that you guys are doing if you're showing up to these classes regularly or you're asking me questions and things like this. Not just me, but maybe your parents or your grandparents, elders in your village, Oftentimes we discount older people and we think that, you know, we can just push them to the side that they don't really know much about life. But, you know, if there's people around you that are 50, 60, 80 years old and and older, these people have been around for a long time. They have a lot of wisdom and sometimes just sitting down with people and asking questions without an interest to teach them anything or prove anything, but just listen to the wisdom that they have to share. This can be really helpful to just take in information and not be boastful and arrogant, but just listen and understand. Even just the decision to have a teacher to learn these teachings is a way for you to work on eliminating ego. There's plenty of people in the world that think that they can attain enlightenment on their own without the help of any teachers, which is impossible other than for an actual Buddha, someone who is able to do that by themselves. But because of the arrogance and because of the ego that's in those people's minds, until they actually choose to reach out and seek guidance from a teacher, they actually won't attain enlightenment. So that ego and conceit is standing in their way of even making progress on the path because they're not even choosing to seek guidance with the teacher. So by you guys choosing to seek guidance with the teacher, this is in effect helping the ego, helping to eliminate conceit because on a certain level, you're admitting to yourself that, yeah, I don't know everything. I need help here. And that can be quite helpful to the mind to just admit that, yeah, I don't know everything and I do need help. There's a practice here in Thailand, and this is also something that even Jesus Christ taught as well, which is washing people's feet. 
you know, if you grew up with Christian teachings, you might have heard or read in the Bible about Jesus Christ teaching people to wash feet and telling people that they should do this continuously. But there's nowhere in there that really explains why. So I'm here to share with you the reason why. The reason why Jesus taught this and the reason why they still do this in Thailand is because it helps you to eliminate arrogance, pride, putting yourself above people. Here in Thailand, there's a tradition of either on New Year's or your birthday or your parents' birthday or Mother's Day, Father's Day, things like this, that we will wash our parents' feet or our children will wash our feet and things like this. Sometimes we come together as a whole family and the elders are there first and all the younger kids will wash their feet and then the next generation kind of is there and then the younger generation will wash feet and it kind of goes on for a while and there's this nice little you know five minute thing where we put our parents feet in a basin of water we will kind of rub their their feet with some soap and water we will take their hands and pour some water over their hands we will even give them some flowers or some fruits or things like this and you do this with your parents sitting on like a sofa or a chair or something like this and you're down on the floor kneeling on the floor it's one thing to tell your family or your parents that i love you that's speech but it's a whole nother thing in your actions to touch somebody's feet and humbly wash their feet this can be really revolutionary for the mind and the reason why Jesus taught this and suggested for people to do this continuously in their life is to cultivate this humbleness. And there's not too many people in the world today that actually do this. But here in Thailand, they continue to do it as part of their regular practices. It's not something that someone's telling you to do. It's not something that you're forced to do. It's not anything that you're coerced to do. But you're just kind of decide on your own that this is something that you would like to do and typically the times that we do this is on new year's on your birthday so rather than making your birthday all about you you do it as a way of showing respect and gratitude to your parents and thanking them for this life that they've given you by being very humble and sharing this action of washing their feet and helping them understand that you have gratitude appreciation and respect for them so on new year's on your birthday on Mother's Day or Father's Day. These are all times during the year or at any time, you know, just any old time where you feel like you would like to cultivate some humbleness and show this gratitude and this appreciation and respect to people around you, you can wash people's feet. And some people even do this with their teacher. If they have a teacher that is very impactful and helpful in their life, they will do this as a way of showing gratitude, appreciation, and respect to their teachers. Another thing you can do is show respect and gratitude by doing a why, as you see me do at the beginning of each class and at the end of each class, showing my respect, my gratitude, and appreciation to all the students who choose to learn and improve their life practice because they're improving their own life, the life of the people around them, and they're improving all of humanity by learning and practicing these teachings. So I why people as a continuous practice, not just in classes, but here in Thailand, when we're moving about our day, we're going to be whying people, we're going to be bowing our head. These are all things that help us to practice being humble and eliminating this conceit. 
Practice having generosity, loving kindness, and compassion with all beings around you. Giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources. Practicing that loving kindness of having this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. Practice compassion where you have a concern for the misfortune of others. These are all things that are already been taught as part of this program. And as you incorporate these into your practice and make them more prevalent, they will help you to work on eliminating conceit. Some other things that you can do is eliminate any kind of judgment or comparisons of being superior or inferior. So wherever you see that arising in the mind, cut it off and let it go. Even if you're mid-sentence where you're talking and you're gossiping about somebody or you're talking to somebody and you see some of that judgment coming in, cut it off and let it go even if it's mid-sentence. Or if you observe it just in your own mind, if you're sitting somewhere and you're seeing the mind starting to judge others, cut that off and let it go and realize that it's unwholesome. Be kind and gentle to everyone, not because you expect anything in return, but because it's the right thing to do. As you practice the right speech and all the other aspects of this path, kindness and being gentle is part of it. And you're not going to be able to do it perfectly, of course, because you're building your practice up. You're not enlightened yet, so you're not going to be doing this 100% all the time, but you work towards practicing this more and more and more so that over time it becomes easier and easier because it's just what you do on a consistent ongoing basis that you're always kind with everyone and you're always gentle with everyone even in the most difficult situations you can maintain your calmness and your composure and be kind and gentle with all beings i already kind of mentioned about asking advice from other people and kind of listening and kind of not trying to prove anything to others this is how the arrogance and pride manifest in the mind is that when we hear somebody teaching something or saying something the mind wants to be boastful and it wants to come over the top. So if somebody's sharing some information or some thoughts or opinions, the mind wants to come over the top and wants to be superior to that person. So the way that you counteract this is that you ask people for advice and you just listen. It doesn't mean you have to follow what they say or that you necessarily agree with what they're saying, but you can just ask them and just listen. Because sometimes what the mind wants to do is when you hear somebody sharing something, you want to say, oh, I already know that. Or, oh, yeah, I already know that. Or, I already understood that, right? The mind wants to project this arrogance that what somebody's saying, you already know. Well, you might know 80 or 90% about what they're saying, but there might be 5 or 10% in there that you don't know. So if you project this arrogance, like I already know that, then people are going to stop sharing with you. They're going to stop being interested in sharing certain wisdom that could potentially help you. So as a practitioner who is wise and who is not believing anything and is listening to things and then deciding what is the truth and what's not the truth, you should be able to listen to anybody about anything. And it doesn't mean you're going to run out and go do those things. It means you listen and you understand and then you can reflect and then you can practice and decide what you're going to actually incorporate as part of your life practice rather than just listening to somebody and then feeling like you have to go out and do everything they said. If your mind is patient and content and you're wise, you should be able to just listen and then decide for yourself what aspects of what they're sharing 
are something you can incorporate into your life and what things you feel like aren't helpful for your life without trying to prove like, oh yeah, I already know that, okay? Look to help other people without any goal or expectation of anything in return or any positive benefit for yourself. This can be really helpful. This is a practice of generosity. Whereas if you're expecting something in return, you want something back based on all your time, effort, energy, and resources that you put out, you're always expecting something back in return. This is part of the mind's arrogance and pride that it feels like I invested this, so therefore I should get that back or something more than that. But sometimes you need to practice in such a way that you're willing to just give your time, effort, energy, and resources without any expectation or any positive benefit for yourself that is just something that you're willing to help other people without any benefit for yourself. Because the benefit that you're actually getting is the elimination of the conceit, of the pride. But don't think about that. Just think about it as, let me just help this person without any expectation of anything in return. We already talked about this one, about seeking guidance from a teacher. I kind of mentioned that on a previous one. And then just like we talked about with personal existence view, wherever you see arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, or comparing arise, cut it off and let it go. That's really important that you observant of the mind. That's why that right mindfulness is there, is to be aware of the mind so that whenever you see any arrogance, pride, judgment, measuring, or comparing, you cut it off and let it go, knowing that that's unwholesome and that you don't allow it to consistently arise in the mind, but wherever you observe it does arise, you cut it off and let it go. And then as you need help, seek guidance with a teacher over multiple sessions because you're probably going to have situations where you're not quite sure based on how you practiced. Was this conceit or was it not conceit? Or did I handle this situation in the best way possible? Or are there other things, teacher, that you could recommend? Because for me, I'm not attached to you. So if you share something with me that I think like, oh, yeah, you could improve here. And here's some ideas for how you can improve. Or if you share something with me and it's like, yeah, it sounds like you've kind of covered everything there. Then I will share and be honest with you because I'm not uh, worried about hurting your feelings because I know that you're coming to me with an interest to seek guidance and understand. And I know that I'm not going to hurt your feelings because I'm gonna practice right speech and share things with you in a way that you can understand and you can learn from. But when you're sharing with your teacher and you're seeking guidance, you have to be sure that that ego isn't there, that that conceit isn't there. Because oftentimes a student wants to tell their teacher all the wonderful things they're doing. Oh, teacher, I'm doing this, or oh, teacher, I noticed this, or here's this benefit, or I'm no longer doing this, I'm doing this. The student oftentimes wants to tell the teacher all the wonderful things they're doing. Okay, that's fine. You can share the improvements that you're making. I understand. But what I'm really interested in talking with you about is all the things you're struggling with all the difficulties, because that's where you're going to make your real progress. I know these teachings are helping to improve the condition of the mind. I know the Buddhist teachings work really, really well, and that you're experiencing more peacefulness and calmness. That's nice to know occasionally, but what you should really be interested in is set that arrogance aside, set that pride aside, set that conceit aside, set that ego aside, and tell your teacher all the things you're struggling with. Tell your teacher about how horrible you were 
at that store that somebody didn't give you your french fries and you got angry because they didn't have your french fries or something like this right that's some silly example but you understand what i'm sharing is that share with your teacher all the challenges and difficulties that you're having and that's where the real work begins because now hearing your struggles and difficulties i can really truly help you but if you just share with me all the wonderful things that are happening then you know when do we ever get to talk about the struggles and difficulties that's where you really need the most help so let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about this well uh, here in egypt people tend to sit on the floor while they are around grandparents and teachers do you consider this a way to eliminate consita Yes, this is very helpful. We do the same thing in Thailand that the elders or the teachers will sit on the sofa and it's not because they walk in and they just plop themselves down, you know, with their own arrogance or pride, but oftentimes when a teacher walks in or when elders walk in or your parents come into your house, you offer them a seat, a really comfortable seat. And from what I've experienced here in Thailand is oftentimes all of these people are used to sitting on the floor so they will kind of sit on the sofa or sit in a chair for a period of time out of politeness but then after like 10 or 20 minutes they'll make their way down to the floor and we're kind of all sitting on the floor and that's just kind of like the way that we all kind of uh, spend time together so yes this is very helpful so if you're watching tv even alone and you feel like you would like to sit on the floor like do that the more time you can spend on the floor either sleeping or sitting granted that your body should be comfortable not luxurious not painful but comfortable then do those things because it's really going to help the mind to be humble and down to earth if you're on the floor sleeping and sitting as you're watching tv or reading a book or doing other things like this thanks teacher no more questions okay this next thing I was going to share with you guys is something that the Buddha was sharing with his students when he was discussing aspects of the ego and this pride and this arrogance that the mind oftentimes will have. And as you guys know, I will sometimes bring in words of the Buddha because I can sit here and share these things with you and help you along, but it really does help to hear the words of the Buddha and understand that what I'm sharing with you is directly connected to what the Buddha taught too, so that you don't have to believe me that dissolving the ego is part of this path to enlightenment, but you can see it in the Buddha's teachings as well. There's many places in his teachings where he talks about non-self and eliminating the self. Some of the famous words that he shares is he says, there is no you there, right? So you might think about that, that there is no you there. So when the mind is wanting to grab onto this self-image and self-identity and it starts experiencing this discontentedness because of its personal existence view, remember the Buddha's words where he says, there is no you there. There isn't a you, so let that go. But here's some more elaborate words that he shared that's titled gain honor and praise are an obstacle even for an arahant an arahant is an enlightened being so he's saying gain honor and praise are an obstacle even for an arahant monks gain honor and praise i say are an obstacle even for a monk who is an arahant one with taints destroyed so this is somebody who's enlightened the buddha saying gain honor and praise are an obstacle even for an enlightened being 
When this was said, the venerable Ananda, who's one of his closest students, asked the master teacher Gautama, why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle even for a monk with taints destroyed? So Ananda rightfully asking is like, hold on a second. If someone's enlightened, why is gain, honor, and praise an obstacle? They're already enlightened. They shouldn't have an ego at this point. Someone whose taints are destroyed, they've eliminated the 10 fetters. Their mind is already enlightened. Why is gain, honor, and praise such an obstacle for them? They should already have eliminated that from the mind. So Ananda is asking this question to the Buddha. The Buddha says, I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind. So what the Buddha is saying here is this enlightened being who's enlightened and their mind is unshakable, gain, honor, and praise isn't an obstacle for them because they're already enlightened. Their mind is already liberated. Their mind is already unshakable. So gain, honor, and praise isn't an obstacle for an enlightened being. But I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of. So gain, honor, and praise, this ego, is an obstacle to his attainment of enlightenment, right? So here's the full sentence. But I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of those peaceful dwellings in this very life, which are achieved by one who resides diligent, dedicated, and determined. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, obstructive to achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage or enlightenment. So he's basically saying allowing this gain, honor, and praise to come into the mind is just polluting the mind so much. It's so bitter, it's vile, it's obstructive to achieving enlightenment, right? Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, praise and we will not let the arisen gain honor and praise persist obsessing our mind. Thus should you train yourself. So what he's essentially saying here is cut off and let go of any gain honor and praise. You can't control people telling you you're so handsome quarantine or, you know, Chrissy, you're so beautiful or Jane, you're so beautiful. You can't stop people from telling you these things but you can stop your mind from allowing this gain honor and praise to obsess the mind and arise these pleasant feelings as a result so when you hear these complimentary agreeable things about your self-image or about your self-identity don't allow the arrogance and pride to come into the mind where you see that cut it off and let it go or if you see that somebody's talking negative about your self-image or self-identity, realize that that's not who you are and let that go and realize that this physical appearance is not you. This identity of being a mom or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a son or a daughter or some nationality or some sexual orientation or some ethnicity or something like this, this is not who we are as a person. So when we observe that the mind is starting to obsess 
about these things, this gain, honor, and praise, the Buddha is saying, train yourselves to not allow it to persist. Don't allow it to obsess the mind. And by doing this, you can ultimately get to that unshakable mind where the mind is liberated and it's no longer shaken up by agreeable or disagreeable contact about your self-image, your self-identity, and you won't allow that arrogance or pride to come into the mind. So the last thing that I'll share with you guys, and then I'll just kind of open up to anything you guys would like to discuss, is that you should always and forever develop your practice to eliminate the ego. Never assume that it's been extinguished. You've heard me share before that even when the mind is enlightened, don't convince the mind that it is enlightened. If you observe a year or two years or three years with no discontentedness, just smile because the Buddhist teachings led exactly where he said they would to this liberation of mind, to this freedom of strong feelings, to enlightenment, to peace, to calmness, to serenity, to contentedness and joy. You can just smile, but don't ever convince the mind that you've eliminated all the 10 fetters or that you've eliminated the ego. Don't assume that it's gone because the moment you assume that it's gone, that's when it's gonna to try to rear up its ugly head. You would like to be vigilant where you're dedicated, determined, and diligent to always observe whether any of these aspects of the mind are arising so that then you can cut it off and let it go. So that if you convince the mind that the ego is gone, then your guard's going to kind of be down. And now when the ego raises up its head, you're like, ah, that's not the ego. That's just me thinking this way or thinking that way. You're going to be complacent if you think the ego is actually gone or you think the self is gone, that personal existence view. Even though you might kind of think about, okay, it appears that I'm in the first stage of enlightenment. It's not really wise to convince the mind that you are in that first stage of enlightenment because that's when the mind becomes complacent. And now when this personal existence view kind of rises up, you won't be as dedicated to be able to cut this off and let it go. You'll kind of tolerate it in the mind. And instead, what you would like to do is never assume that any of these fetters are gone. Never assume that you're actually enlightened, but just remain vigilant, remain dedicated, and remain diligent that now with this wisdom of these unwholesome qualities, wherever you see them arising, you don't tolerate them. You let them go. You cut them off and you obliterate them is what the Buddha describes, that you obliterate these fetters, that you destroy them. He actually uses this word to destroy the fetters. And then they're no longer subject to future arising. Whereas if you just cut this wild bush back a little bit, then it's going to grow some more. Whereas if you obliterate this wild bush at the stump and you uproot the roots, then it will never grow back again. So if you assume that these things are gone, then they can kind of grow on you without you realizing it. So it's better just to not even assume that they're gone. So let me open up to any questions that you guys have about anything that we've discussed today. Yes, teacher, I have a question about, uh, do you consider eliminating the first and eighth fetters, which are the ego, is part of eliminating ignorance, which is the 10th fetter? Yes, by training the mind to eliminate both of those fetters, 
the mind's working to eliminate ignorance. And ignorance is the 10th fetter. As long as there's personal existence view in the mind, and as long as there's conceit in the mind, there's also still ignorance as well. So this is the reason why the Buddha put ignorance as number 10, because in order to get to liberation or enlightenment, the mind has to completely 100% transform ignorance into wisdom. And then it's that wisdom that helps you to eliminate personal existence view and conceit. Does this mean that most of us as humans, we are born with this better ego? The ego oftentimes is a condition of all the experiences that we've had. A little baby doesn't come out of the mother's womb and go into the nursery and be like, ah, you know, my clothes are better than your clothes. Or, you know, the shape of my head is better than the shape of your head. Or I've got more hair on my head than you've got on your head. A little baby doesn't come out of the womb thinking that way. But because of our conditioning as we grow up and the various experiences that we have and all the conditioning that we experience growing up, we start acquiring this ego. So that's why when I defined ego, I was explaining it as an accumulation of all these experiences that we've had over the course of our life from the past and the future. So this personal existence view this self-image and self-identity, this holding on to the self, this is something that's born into our mind, that we don't necessarily project a self-image or project a self-identity, but we hold on to this physical body thinking that it's the self. So for example, if you went up to a little baby and you blew in its face, it's gonna tremble and it's gonna you know, kind of uh, contort its body because it's trying to protect the self. It's trying to protect the body because it views this body as being itself and it's very protective and fearful of the self. Uh, so that aspect of that is already there when we're born into the world. But in terms of the self-image, the self-identity, and this conceit, this gets accumulated over the course of our life through our various experiences. So accumulated over the course of life, does this mean that the early we work on eliminating this, the easier it will be? Yes, that's correct. And that's why I introduce it here in the group learning program and start helping you to understand that this is something you're going to need to work on because these two fetters are quite challenging. Central desire is quite challenging as well for certain people, but particularly personal existence view and conceit are some of the more challenging fetters to eliminate from the mind. So that's why I introduce it here so that you can start getting some familiarity with it But then as you continue to learn and progress in this program and other programs, you can continually be developing your understanding of what this is and actively working to eliminate it because it's not going to be something that you eliminate in one week or one month. It's going to take some time to chip away at this gradually and slowly over time. Any advice about how to help a child to eliminate this ego? The beautiful thing about children is they tend to not have much ego. They tend to not also have much anger, hatred, and ill will, depending on which age they are and what their experiences have been like in life. So where you start sharing this with your children early in life, it can actually really help them so that they don't go through life with an ego. Wherever you see them have ego, help them understand that that's what it is and that they need to cut that off and let it go. 
So I can give you some examples from my life. Like at one point, Bailan had a mohawk. And when he got a mohawk, he ended up having a bunch of arrogance and ego around that. It, his mind started to become more egotistical. And I started observing that. And I started letting him know that this was happening. And I let him know over multiple situations. And then there was one particular situation where he was being very egotistical. And I said, all right, I know what we're going to do. And he says, what? I said, we're going to go get your haircut. And oh, he was really upset. He was like trying to work his way out of it. He was trying to negotiate out of it. And then from when we got to the barber shop, he was ego was rearing up some more, saying that he was going to run out of the barber shop and go home and leave me there. And he was saying all these other things. He even cried the whole time while he was getting his hair cut, which told me that this hair needed to go, that he was holding on to this self-image, this self-identity, and this conceit and arrogance was there. So, you know, the Thai people knew what I was doing as being his barber. And yes, he cried. I didn't have any guilt or shame or any feelings because I wasn't attached to him not crying, that I knew that him getting rid of this hair was part of him getting to liberation and being able to no longer allow his mind to have that conceit and that personal existence view around the hair. That's something that we laugh about today. But at the time, you know, it was very hard for him to let go of that hair. And then about a year or two later, he asked to dye his hair and he wanted to get a certain color in his hair. And, you know, I was trying to work with him and help him let that go. But eventually to help him let it go is he actually got the color and he had his hair color and then not too long after that here comes the ego again and i started showing it to him like see you got this hair color and now the ego's coming back so i had to keep showing it to him and then eventually suggested to him that he get his hair cut and he agreed that yes the hair color had to go because he didn't like the results of his ego because when my wife and i saw his ego come up and arise we ensured that the karma was there to teach him that this isn't the way that he should conduct himself. So as a parent, when you have children, you are karma essentially, where you see them lying or you see them stealing or you see them talking with wrong speech, you have to make sure that they're experiencing their karma in that example so that they can see this cause and effect relationship. And same thing with conceit and personal existence view. When you see that arise, you need to have multiple conversations with your children to teach them what it is first over multiple situations so they understand what it is and how it's causing them problems. And then ultimately work with them to help them eliminate it. And then when you see that they're not quite getting there, that's where you have to come in and be gamma and make sure that they're experiencing the results of their decisions to hold on to this conceit and hold on to this personal existence view. There needs to be certain consequences as a result. Let's go to Nick. Yes, sir. A question from Brexit on Facebook. He writes, Venerable teacher, making oneself always a victim, is this also a conceit? For example, this happened to me because of God's will or I am the victim of my fate or destiny, or I won't do that because I'm not good in that, or I am not talented like him. The first two that you talked about, this is wrong view, that if you think that 
things are happening because of God or because of destiny. This is wrong view, not understanding cause and effect in the natural law of gamma. So that's what those two are about. Uh, the other two, can you repeat what those are, Nick? Yes, sir. Or I won't do that because I'm not good in that, or I am not talented like them. So that is part of conceit. That is part of feeling that you're inferior to others. So that's part of the ego, where you kind of diminish yourself. You think that you're lesser of a person. And notice the language that I'm saying, right? We diminish ourself. Because if there's a self there, then the mind is going to have a tendency to put itself above or below others. Whereas if you get rid of this self, if you get rid of this personal existence view, if you get rid of this false perception or this misperception that there is a self and you realize non-self, then this is where the mind can actually be quite confident. As long as there's a self there, the mind's going to have this tendency to put itself above or below others. So when you get rid of that, then you can realize with confidence that, okay, let me work at accomplishing this goal and working towards this goal. And if I can pull together the wisdom and the decisions to accomplish this, then I will. And if I'm not able to do that, then I will just change course and go in, a, in another direction. But oftentimes we want something so bad that then we are afraid to feel the painful feelings if we don't get that certain thing. This is part of what we're going to talk about next week, which is eliminating fears. If the mind has this arrogance and pride and you come up with an idea and you're longing with craving to perform this idea, and then the mind starts thinking about, well, gosh, if I don't get that, I'm going to feel awfully painful if that doesn't happen. So therefore, I'm not going to do that because I would like to avoid these painful feelings. This is where the mind doesn't even try to do certain things, and it kind of talks itself out of potential success. Whereas if you get rid of this personal existence feeling, you get rid of this conceit, and you're comfortable with, let me put forth the effort to do this, and if I'm successful at it, great, then I'll be successful. But if for some reason I can't pull together the wisdom to do this, then I'm completely comfortable with letting that go and then moving over here and doing this other thing. And for someone who isn't craving permanence, they can do that really easily and be comfortable with that. Okay, sir. So um, following up with this, this is part of the question, and just for understanding, is would making oneself uh, be a victim, is that a conceit? If somebody is constantly thinking they're a victim, this is part of wrong view. Because what someone needs to understand is that anything that happens in our life, it's a result of our decisions. That if we choose to be around somebody who treats us badly, for example, that's a choice that we're making to continue to be around that person. It's not that we're necessarily a victim. Yes, we can be a victim of a crime, for example. But if we're choosing to be around someone who's constantly uh, abusing us, that's a choice that we're making as our own decisions. So rather than feeling like a victim, instead we can practice right view and realize that everything we experience in life is as a result of our decisions. So that if somebody tries to abuse us or actually does abuse us, we can then make wise decisions to move away from that. 
rather than staying in the relationship and constantly thinking that we're a victim. Because if we constantly think we're a victim, then we diminish ourselves, and oftentimes we stay in a really bad situation. Whereas if we realize that this person is causing abuse to us either physically, verbally, sexually, or otherwise, then in that first situation where we are victimized, then we can make a decision to move away from that and ensure we get the help that we need. Thank you, Venerable Sir. You're welcome. Since that this hour of the question, we have to take it short. All right. Well, this is a really big topic, a really meaty topic. If you haven't read this chapter 16, I suggest you do that. Or if you have read it, you might be interested to go back and read it again because there's a lot of content in there. And I wouldn't think that you could just read this one time and understand it or be in just one class and understand it and be able to go off and eliminate the self and the ego right away. That's not how these teachings work. You're going to need to read these chapters multiple times, this whole book multiple times. You'll need to hear these teachings and these discourses multiple times. You need to revisit this, particularly this topic. So this might be the first time you've learned this topic and consider it like an introduction. It might be the first time you've read about this, considered an introduction, and realize that you're going to need to revisit this multiple times as you gradually wear this away. And the more and more that you do wear away the ego and dissolve it, then the mind can become more and more liberated. Because as long as there's personal existence view and conceit, the mind can experience that peacefulness and be at ease because it's carrying around this burden of this self-image, this self-identity, this arrogance and pride that it's projecting out into the world. So next week on Sunday, we're going to be learning chapter 17, which is eliminating fears. Are you really scared? I'm going to help you understand where fear comes from and how to actually eliminate these fears from the mind. Because as long as the mind is experiencing fears, it can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. When the mind experiences fear, it's shaken up, even if it's just for a half of a second or one second. An enlightened mind isn't going to experience that, even that half a second or one second of fear. So it's important to understand where fear is coming from. And part of it relates to what we're talking about today. And understanding where the fear is coming from, then you can learn how to eliminate the fears as well. So we're going to talk about that next Sunday. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. So if you'd like to join class for that or listen to the replay or either on Facebook, YouTube or the podcast, you'll be able to do the meditation with us and or participate in the class this Sunday and this Wednesday. So thank you all for joining us for today's class. I appreciate all your diligence to learning and practicing these teachings. As you need help, feel free to reach out seek guidance. You can ask questions in the Facebook group. You can ask questions in our online classes. You can send a personal message if you like, and you can even schedule a personal discussion where we can meet one-on-one -on -one in Zoom. And then that way, everything that we talk about can be specifically related to you and your practice and what you're developing and ensure that you get a chance to ask specific questions that you have. And then we can talk on a much more personal level rather than kind of talking more broadly like we do sometimes in these classes. So you have all those options available for you to seek guidance. So we'll see you guys in a future class, either this Sunday or Wednesday, perhaps both. Have a lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time.
สวัสดีครับ Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit Patreon.com/forward/slash/supportBuddha. To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. <laughs>